0: Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloud. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter
1: guys so this week we're gonna do a recap of uh 2018 and kind of our favorite amazon asia and google stories or we're just industry uh general stories so i know i asked each of you to go and find uh three three topics uh that you wanted to rank three two and one and we're going to run through those today And then there are i do have a couple of honorable mentions uh that i have that i've I looked at it and said, you know, they're not really top three worthy, but um, I can talk about them because I just think they are sort of interesting to the overall cloud uh, journey. So jumping right into it, uh, let's talk about Peter's number three.
2: Sure, so number three, I went with the, uh, the Defense Department's uh, JEDI cloud contract put out to bid. Um, and I think the, big, the two big, two big takeaways from that one, one would be the size. Uh, ten billion dollars over several years, um, and then the other would be that they're uh, they're giving a winner take all, a one vendor strategy for that spend, which uh, which is interesting. I mean, we look at a lot of companies right now. Some going all in on one platform, and others uh, deciding to go with a multi cloud strategy. So here's the uh, here's the government doing an uh, all in strategy and uh, spending a pretty significant amount of money on it, not to mention defense going to public cloud.
1: Do you find that many customers actually embrace the multi-cloud strategy for more than a you know a migration effort? Um, do you see that they're actually successful running multiple production workloads across multiple clouds?
2: I think a lot of people have that as a strategy, and then they're going to start with one uh, because it's just it's too much to digest. But we definitely have some people looking at DR from one cloud to another.
1: Yeah, you know, traditionally I I haven't really found anybody who's running multiple production workloads across multiple cloud providers unless they've you know segmented a very specific set of workloads. For example, their big data or machine learning um to Google potentially and then their their EC2 container workloads to Amazon, or if I, if they are doing multi-clouds because they, they chose the wrong cloud provider and they're multi-cloud until they get off the wrong cloud provider as they move to the right one. <laughs> um, so it's, it's, you know, multi-clouds really interesting because there are a lot of trade-offs to it, but we could have a whole show just talking about that. But um, going back to the Jedi contract, um, you know, do you feel like there's a, a strong contender to win this deal?
2: Well, originally uh, there was many complaints that, uh, It was tailor-made for Amazon to win. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I know that IBM and Oracle are, I believe, protesting and potentially not bidding.
0: No, they announced a lawsuit, actually. Early December, they're suing the government over the deal. There you go. So not not many happy cloud providers.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, there's been a lot of argument that the Jedi contract was written in the favor of Amazon Web Services and that it's very clearly written for them to win the deal. Um, There was some interesting analysis I saw um, before the holiday, actually, from Beth Technology. And she basically wrote an article, Why Microsoft, uh, not Amazon, Will Win the Pentagon Contract. Um, And she has some interesting arguments in here. One of them is that the Pentagon in 2014 awarded all of their operating system contracts to Microsoft. And so, you know, if they really want to have a single vendor strategy, do you really want to take all your operating systems and all these things that you have a contract with Microsoft and then go put them onto Amazon? And so she argues that there's a good chance that Azure might win this deal, too, which you know that's her opinion. And I, I respect her opinion as well. I think it's still anyone's game, but it you know, definitely feels like Amazon's sort of in the lead on this one.
0: So what do you feel about Google pulling out kind of over, um, employee pressure and, and moral feelings over the contract?
1: It's a problem. Right? You need to kind of decide, like, ethically, what is our company going to do? Google has never been one to be a big privacy company or privacy focused. So it's interesting that they listened to that pressure internally and said, you know, we're not. Gonna a bit on this deal because we're concerned about how our technology may be used to restrict privacy or to invade other countries or do different spying techniques. So that's interesting. But then you you also look at some of this technology like recognition and and you're like, well, if it wasn't going to be used in security applications at airports, what's, you know, what's its purpose <laughs> beyond a violation of privacy
0: in some way? I wonder if they ever had a chance. I wonder if their cloud was up to par as far as the DoD was concerned.
1: Yeah, I mean, they do have quite a few security certification But I don't know if they've gone through the FedRAMP process, um, which is really the key steps to become compliant with the government's requirements. Um, That's why both Azure and AWS have their own GovCloud-type data centers that host these things for the government. Yeah, I don't know if Google has done that investment yet or if that's where they really want to focus their effort. And this, you know, being the number three player, um, they may feel like focusing on enterprise features is the right play versus government features right now.
0: It's really interesting one. It almost made my number three, Bezos said, um, at the wide conference when he was responding to the news of Amazon selling facial recognition and other technology to law enforcement and the DoD. I was, I was kind of proud that he got up on stage and told people uh, that the country was going to be in trouble if tech companies were going to turn their back on national security
2: yeah I do you want to fight wars nowadays you want to be?
0: do you want to do you want to know more than the other guy yeah that's interesting all right moving on to uh,
1: jonathan's number three
0: i had a really hard time in my third choice i wanted to be excited about a lot of things this year um nlb was one transit gateway was one and i felt like they didn't quite hit the mark when they launched nlb didn't support cross az communications transit gateway we've waited for for years and now we can't do region to region i mean I feel like the customer experience would have been so much better if they could have waited three months and launched it fully featured rather than launching it like this. It's a bit of a disappointment. So I think my third choice is Lambda custom runtimes. People have been waiting for Ruby support and Go support for a long time. And all those things are possible in Rust and anything you like, but the the opportunities, I think, extend more than just traditional environments for traditional um, either interpreted or compiled languages. We start again into the realm of, well, the runtime could start to be an application in its own right. So imagine uh, the runtime could be JMeter. And then when people upload their Lambda functions, they don't upload an executable function as such where they can upload a configuration for JMeter. And when they invoke it, it performs the test. So I think think these, these other use cases, which may not have been in Amazon's mind when they enable custom runtimes are going to be really interesting
1: yeah the lambda stuff's quite interesting and like i said we talked about in a previous show is this really the future of where amazon sees computing going is serverless all the way and the support of custom runtimes definitely supports that notion and i'm excited to see what people do with it so do you think that custom runtimes are really going to meet the mark day one or do you feel like it's similar to transit gateway and some of the other services you mentioned that haven't really quite you know hit the mark on their initial day one, that Lambda layers and Lambda custom runtimes is all brand new. So do you think it falls into the same category?
0: No, I think this is ready to go. I think they've given a lot of thought to this. It's taken them a, a very long time to get to where they are. And I'm super happy with, with what they have at launch. And we get Ruby. Ooh. <laughs> oh. Ruby, I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to make it like a Microsoft QBasic for lambda or something like that, just for fun. I mean, I've mean, i seen a lot of them pop up in the news feed. was already done oh, uh, wow. a few other old languages. Just run a thousand lambdas to run your mainframe app. How about yours, Justin? What's your number three?
1: Yeah, so uh, I picked uh, Amazon Secrets Manager as my number three, and I chose it for a couple of reasons. One, uh, it's Amazon's second or third attempt at really coming out with secrets management solution. Uh, you know, with Parameter Store being kind of what they did last year, the Secrets Manager being the future. Uh, I think it really opens up a lot of use cases that are really important for computing and security and, you know, being able to put passwords and access keys into runtimes. And it really just really enables a lot of new use cases as well as auto-rotation of passwords um, when using RDS, that's, that's a fantastic security control and something that a lot of customers have strived to do with a lot of scripting and a lot of code and a lot of potential downtime. Uh, to have this all kind of taken care of tied to the metadata service and other things we do with roles, I just think it's a really fantastic service and so it made my number three.
0: Cool. So is it, is it really just a way of, of hiding those secrets away under the covers of um, under the protections of IAM? Well,
1: yeah. So you have the ability to store them in you know into this key store and then basically retrieve them through an IAM role um, or you can just make them not available visible at all to end user and say, look, this is completely managed by Amazon. Um, I'm only invoking it as an alias or a reference. And then Amazon handles all of the display of the password to things like my SQL client. Uh, and then as it's getting used after 30 days or whatever period you decide, it auto-rotates that for you and updates both the configuration side and the host system that needs that password. Yeah,
2: cool. Yeah, I think this is a prime example of why companies go with the all-in strategy. That tight integration of those services that just make it so much easier to get up and running quickly, get the functionality you need. For
1: other choice you have really in the secret space is Vault. Um, and you know Vault's a fantastic product too, and I have a lot of respect for the HashiCorp guys and what they're doing with Vault. But if you're all on Amazon and you have this ability to use a built-in tool, it's, it's significantly cheaper, significantly accelerates your adoption curve and, and just takes something out of the stack you don't have to worry about. So let's uh, move on to our number twos. Peter, let's start with you. All right, number two. I'm going to go with more contracts
2: um uh so in 2017 um snapchat announced a two billion dollar commit to google and that's on top of a one billion dollar commit to amazon over the next five years yeah which is just amazing to see these contracts getting so huge for you know a a service which in itself advertises that it's it's uh no commitment so this is voluntary action by these companies seeing real value in committing longer term to uh, spend levels, assuming to get uh, whether it's uh, you know closer access to the development teams I'm sure uh, discounted pricing et cetera, but uh, the reason this is uh, relevant for two thousand and eighteen that actually it was through two thousand and seventeen they announced it in two thousand and eighteen that uh, they just barely covered their commit spend on those cloud platforms for that year, so it's pretty interesting strategy to commit that much uh, upfront uh, when we really want to have flexibility on what we spend those dollars on. I guess others could argue it's the perfect amount if they, if they came right up to the edge because they probably got the max discounts they can get. But what do you guys think about I mean, huge commit contracts for
1: cloud infrastructure providers?
0: Wow, things are changing so quickly. I'm, I'd be I mean five years is, is uh, an eternity in this space.
1: So is it, is it a five-year commit a three billion, basically across both cloud providers? yeah it started at like i think four hundred
2: million on Google and fifty million on Amazon, I think, and then each year ramping up on each of those platforms to the aggregate of three wow. yeah
1: I mean for a company that you know basically did uh two hundred and ninety seven million in revenue in q three of twenty eighteen and and earnings of negative three hundred twenty-five million off that revenue uh, <laughs> in the same quarter. That seems like a very large commitment. Uh, and I hope those discounts are really making it worthwhile for them to uh, to commit to that level. That's a big number. Uh, three hundred thousand
0: dollars a day across uh, both providers.
1: Yeah, I, I think uh, they need to talk to some people like Corey about getting their costs down. <laughs> Speaking of AWS, stay up to date with the latest AWS news every Monday morning with the Last Week in AWS newsletter. Corey Quinn gathers the news from AWS, strips out the stuff that nobody cares about, and makes fun of what's left. Subscribe today at lastweekinaws.com. Snark delivered to your inbox. Less fog, more cloud. <laughs> uh, that's a lot of money. I, you know, I think this push from the cloud providers to really lock up... Um, deferred potential revenue is really starting to kind of hurt them in some ways. And, you know, you the days of Amazon announcing, you know, 45 price reductions over the five years seem to kind of be over with this over focus on long term enterprise agreement commitments to get better discounting strategies. Uh, You know, I I think it helps the companies like enterprises that can commit this money, but it's a lot of risk and it's a lot of overhead, a lot of cost management. And, you know, are you not optimizing for costs when you're worried about hitting an annual commitment level? Uh, and it's an interesting balance and trade-off that companies must make. and i I do question some of the logic uh, in something like a three billion over five years. that's it's a huge amount of money. i'd be I'd rather be more conservative, get a little bit of a discount, but no, it's a number that i'm not I'm gonna be able to exceed without having to you know commit money to, that I don't have or don't need to spend.
2: Yeah, and also, like you said, like put some organizational pressure to get you know, from an architectural standpoint, get um, more value for the dollars you're spending instead of pressing them to
1: spend up to the limit. <laughs> All right, moving on to uh, Jonathan's number two.
0: So my number two has got quite some history to it. If you think about how virtualization has changed over the years, it started off with fully emulated virtualization. Everything was was uh, was emulated very, very slow. And over the years with, with Zen releases and KVM releases, we've moved more and more of the work back to the hardware layer. And um, you know, CPU is, is or virtual hardware. Network I.O. is virtual hardware. But things like storage um, and some of the the proprietary uh, interfaces to Amazon technology has been para virtualized until recently so my number two for this year is AWS Nitro which kind of has two faces the the first side of it is the the new KVM hypervisor and the second part of that is the uh, the custom ASICs, which Annapurna Labs built for Amazon after acquisition of a couple of years ago. What the uh, Annapurna technology has done is enabled AWS to move the remainder of these supporting services, which used to be para-virtualized software drivers for storage, uh, networking, and in fact, all of the EC2 management functions into silicon, freeing up the entire host to provide services to the clients and uh, also enables them to provide bare metal instances, still with a management layer, but... I think Amazon is close now to to true bare metal performance.
1: Yeah, the Nitro stuff is quite fascinating. Um, You know, early days of the C5 were a little rocky as, you know, you kind of see the growing pains of these instances and this Nitro hypervisor really kind of get its feet or anything. That was in 2017. And now into 2018, um, you know they, they feel pretty rock solid they definitely are faster than the c4 counterparts they definitely have the performance that you want um, and go back to some of the keynotes from like oracle world they talk about basically their cloud generation 2 and how it's more secure because they're not involved in the you know the hypervisor and all that they're basically doing what amazon did a year before so as much as they're trying to claim this is cloud 2.0 amazon beat them to it a whole year before that with nitro and so it's glad to see that this is something that amazons continue to invest custom silicone to deliver the computing and the performance that we want. And yeah, if we can get to near bare metal performance without the hypervisor overhead, that's a huge win in virtualization.
2: Yeah. And long-term, I mean, I'm sure short-term that's going to help margins, but long-term, that type of innovation's got to
1: drive price the right direction as well. Price is definitely going to be a factor, and I think that's why you're seeing performance improvements in the C5 without major price discussions yet. But I think what's allowing them to do by getting the Nitro hypervisor in place is allowing them to open the door to a lot of new technologies, really move um, you know, software-defined networking and all these different storage-defined networking classes and being able to do it in a much more scalable, more efficient way.
0: Yeah, NLB's private link, I, I would Imagine the transit gateway service. I'm pretty sure all these things are running on the um, ASICs.
1: Moving on to uh, my number two. So I chose the Bloomberg, uh, the big hack, how a China used a tiny chip to infiltrate US companies. And for those who are in technology who don't know about this story, <laughs> basically uh, Bloomberg came out and accused. Uh, China of inserting a pencil-tipped-sized chip into motherboards being used in Supermicro hardware. You know, it's a huge story when it broke. Amazon came out immediately and said the story was false. Apple came out and said it was false, and basically everyone, even including Supermicro, who had a third party come in and investigate their motherboards, posted a letter on December 11th um, that you know testing finds no malicious hardware on Supermicro boards. So you know, overall, it's a huge story because it if it was true. Um, it, it would definitely have some impacts to how security works in the cloud and potentially put some some companies at risk but I think at this point we now proven this story is false or fake news <laughs> but uh, it's really interesting because Bloomberg has really stuck to their guns that this is a true story and has yet to back down from it but uh, it's a really great interesting article and the, the techniques that they talk about that it could be used to potentially inject malicious code into a motherboard at boot up it's really fascinating you know, right out of science fiction in some ways but it is a possible attack vector. It's just the likelihood of it being actually exploited are pretty low, especially if you're doing egress traffic monitoring in any ways uh, that you should be doing. Um, you'd be seeing this malicious traffic happening and you'd be able to detect it pretty quickly. But still, a huge story. Would have been really interesting if it had been true and what it would have meant for the world as a whole. But uh, at this point, I think it's, it's pretty
0: proven to be false. That's a fantastic number two. I remember hearing that news and being... I mean, the first ten seconds horrified, and in the second ten seconds, thinking that's just bullshit. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's very plausible, and that's the thing. Why it's hung around for so long? Why, why they haven't, um, why they haven't retracted it is is kind of interesting. I, th- I think in the years to come, there will be some kind of financial analysis on this whole thing, and we'll figure out that there was some somebody who's profited from uh, you know the dip in the market from this.
1: You've been uh, watching a little bit too much of billions over the holiday break. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you know, one of the really interesting things that happened after the 9-11 attacks was was following the money. I think financial analysis is probably uh, one of the new forensic tools of the century.
1: When this story broke sometime back in, I believe, October timeframe, you know, the stock went from 2150-ish down to... $12. And it's kind of recovered a little bit, but you know, then it's been hurt by the just overall poor stock market performance in the Q4. But yeah, it, it was a big story and it definitely hurt Supermicro in a big way when it ha- first came out. So it'd be fascinating to see if it does tie back to someone manipulating the markets in a big way. But you know, it, it just seems weird to me that Bloomberg, being a pretty well-respected business newspaper, with all this evidence saying that their story is wrong, Amazon coming out day one saying it was wrong, you know that they haven't retracted it in any way is is really fascinating to me, and uh, you have to wonder how confident they are in their sources and and what they what they think they have. But the flip side of it too is that if it is true, right, and the story isn't actually that bad for someone like Amazon, you know, they talk about you know this was discovered during the elemental. Uh, Due diligence process, which for those who are following Elemental, was bought by Amazon, uh, is powering a bunch of their video transcoding services. If it's true, then, you know, Amazon did the right thing. They they identified this issue. They reported to the FBI. They've been on the forefront of it. And Amazon could have come out of the story if it was true and said, look, you know, we identified this in part due diligence we've, you know, completely eradicated this hardware from our data centers and we don't use it. And you know, if it was proven that this didn't happen or they you know, this happened and they didn't do it, you know, that would be devastating to their cloud business overall. So there's really no reason for Amazon to lie about what's in this article because the story actually doesn't paint them in that bad of a light. I mean, it definitely paints super micro in a bad spot, but you know, from Amazon's perspective, if it was true and they found it to be lying, it would be devastating. And I think that's really the most compelling part of the whole story is that the ramifications of the story being true or not true and how it was handled are really the bigger part of the story and not the technology because the technology, like we said, is very plausible.
0: All the cloud providers see the foundation on which they're building is trust. And if they lose the trust, sure. they'll, they'll lose the business for sure.
2: But yeah, it's kind of cool, though, from our just from uh, looking at how your, your instant response was, you know, we would have noticed it anyway because we're monitoring egress traffic. Um, the cloud kind of pushed everybody to do security and and implement security in layers. And so the fact that we're on public cloud and we've made those changes makes threats like this. um, Maybe they seem more likely to happen, but maybe they are less likely to cause the massive damage that could otherwise be caused if we were inherently trusting everything below a a specific level.
0: I guess it's become quite an issue as more and more silicon fab plants have moved away from Silicon Valley and the US in general to places like China and India. Um, that the national security does become a threat. I mean, national security uses technology just like everybody else, perhaps more so than everybody else. And, and to have to outsource production of, of this hardware now to potentially the people that you're trying to protect yourself against is, is certainly a conflict. And Maybe um, maybe it's a good reason to bring that kind of manufacturing back to the U.S.
1: All right. Moving on to our number ones. I want to start out because I, well, I think mine's really cool. I think you guys have some better ones. Uh, so I was, you know, in researching the 2019 best of or 2018 best of announcements, uh, you know, I was looking at probably hundreds of releases from Google and Microsoft and Azure. And one of the ones that I kind of was, was just clicking through was Azure DevOps. And, uh, you know, I opened the link in a different tab and I saw i come back to this a little later. And, you know, I was like, yeah, you know, Amazon has DevOps tools, Azure, Google has DevOps tools. They all have these tools. So. You know, it's just a Me Too announcement. And so when I actually started to dig into the announcement and kind of look at what they released, I was actually really impressed with the amount of depth that they released in their first DevOps pipeline tools. And it's actually uh, a combination of about five different utilities plus a very large extensions marketplace. And it covers Azure boards, which allows you to do Um, Agile methodologies with Kanban or Scrum or different things that you do for that. For like a Jira, they have a pipelining feature, which allows you to do Jenkins, uh, CICD type workflows tied to Git repos, and they have their own Azure repo service, which does Git uh, compliant repos. Uh, and then it also leads into test plans and Azure Artifacts. And so you get both ability to run automated test suites against your pipeline and your code as you build it, but then as well publish those pipelines into a, like an artifactory type repo um, that supports NuGet and Maven and a couple other technologies uh, in Artifacts. So i just overall really impressed with what they released in the DevOps package. And I thought this was a really great article or piece that they did. And this one made my number one for the list just because of the amount of depth they did here, as well as the amount of extensions and plugins that you can now plug into this DevOps service.
0: Wow. I guess I the guess move, move into um, DevOps tooling may explain their acquisition of GitHub.
1: Yeah, it definitely uh, does fit into that storyline quite a bit when you look at what they're, they're providing here um, in this tool set. Even if it's just
2: me, even if it was just me too, it's super important. You you get very little benefit out of uh, cloud infrastructure if you can't easily provision your infrastructure with code and um, deploy your apps quickly.
0: Speaking of DevOps, when I think of DevOps in the cloud, I think of Foghorn Consulting. Foghorn has been around since 2008 They've been on the forefront of cloud enablement and have delivered powerful transformations for hundreds of clients from startups to Fortune 500, including highly regulated industries. They were early visionaries and practitioners of using code to automate infrastructure and operations to drive up cloud efficiencies while driving down costs. Terraform, Ansible, Jenkins, AWS… Asia and GCP go to fogops.io/thecloudpod to learn more about their FogOps services and sign up for a free, well-architected framework review.
1: Oh, great! Let's talk about uh, Peter's number
2: one. My number one for 2018, flashing back 10 years ago: uh, perpetual software licenses are losing share, market share to SaaS applications. Mobiles growing dominating. Android and Apple are dominating. Microsoft's operating systems appear to be getting less important. Linux is on the rise in the data center. Macs, you see them in, uh, in the enterprise. Uh, all is lost for Microsoft. And then in 2018, where's Microsoft? They surpass Apple to become our country's largest public market cap company. So just incredible pivot by Microsoft. And um, a way to transform when you're that large of a company to to figure out where the market's going and, and change quickly enough to do that, I think is pretty impressive.
1: It's, it, I think more impressive, actually, is the turnaround that Satya has done since he took over as CEO in 2014. I mean, if you look at 2012, 2013, and the, the end of the Balmer era, you know, it was, it was bad days at Microsoft. You know, no one wanted to work there. Uh, They were struggling with their cloud story. They were not really dominating the way they were in Windows and Office. Um, And, you know, he takes over in 2014 and, you know, becomes more open and changes the entire Microsoft ecosystem to be embrace the open, embrace Linux, embrace future technologies, be better on the Mac. And, you know, just these last four years have been just shocking how much he's changed it, the culture, they become hip again, people want to work there again. Um, you know, really a strong testament to what he's been able to achieve um, at Microsoft in the last four years. We talk sometimes about, you know, a lot of the Azure revenue being driven from Office 365, but, you know, that's still a good starting place. And if they can lead that revenue into sustaining long-term growth on the Azure platform, more power to them. Uh, I I think it's, it's been interesting. I think it's a company to continue to watch for the next several years. Great. Well, let's move on to your number one, Jonathan.
0: My number one, I've waited for a very long time for. I started early on, you know, early 80s, working with computers. When I finally got to to the school around, you know, 11, 12 years old, Acorn computers in the UK were very big, right at the beginning of um, ARM processes. So, ARM started as a joint venture between Acorn, who made the BBC computer, Apple, and VLSI, who were the, the uh, silicon fabricators at the time, and... They made the ARM chip, one of the one, of the, one of the most popular chips nowadays. I mean, there's absolutely billions and billions of these things around. And so I've waited a very, very long time for ARM to appear in the cloud. And this year, Amazon announced another partnership with Annapurna Labs, their Graviton CPUs. And on the face of it, people may say, well, why why do you care about this? And I think I care about it for a number of reasons. For a start, the cost. The cost is 60% of the cost of an equivalent C5 class. And the performance for heavily intensive CPU loads like ray tracing, you know, audio processing, video processing, is around 95% of the performance of a C5 class. So cost analysis, it's it's a no-brainer that people should be pivoting their heavy CPU workloads to the A1 class in Amazon. The other benefit is now an environmental thing. I mean, most of the savings that Amazon are passing on to the consumers in this case are going to be based on power consumption a typical high performing intel cpu is going to be 130 140 watts for that type of performance and the equivalent arm cpu is a quarter of that and you know, a 1 gigahertz arm chip uh just serving some basic web needs on demand event driven uh is going to consume a few watts of power so it's it's a uh, wow. great for the environment too I, I love it when yeah i love it when uh when things
2: that are good for the environment are Also, better, faster, cheaper, because then they're widely adopted very quickly.
1: I see a trend here in your your picks this year, that very uh, ARM-friendly, very (laughs) ARM-focused in general. Uh, Uh, You're definitely very excited about this. I'm excited to see what you're going to do with it next year.
0: I already have a plan to migrate most of the services I have running at my day job from Intel to these A1 class ARM processors. I'm gonna check that out and see if I can swap some stuff over for sure.
1: Yeah, I, I haven't tried. I wonder how much software we had to recompile, or or how much of an emulator there is for x86. I I have you know no experience in this area other than my iPad, and my iPhone, which run ARM you know based processors. But that software is you know custom written for that and app developers, and I don't write apps, so to me it's it's kind of all new. But uh, yeah, I'm definitely interested in seeing more about where this this heads over the next. You know, year or so, and you know, there's been rumors now for a while that Mac may switch their core infrastructure over to ARM uh, as well, and off of Intel platform. So, you know, this is seems to be the future where a lot of computing is heading. And with you know, Intel not really delivering on the CPU side, you what is next? What's after x86 as a platform? And and that will be interesting to see. I don't know if 2019 is the year we're going to start seeing those type of things, but um, 2020, 2021, things are getting different.
2: Look at the um, just look at the versions, like we're moving to containers. Uh, the base OSs are becoming bare bones, right? All of our containers are single purpose running, you know, starting oftentimes with Alpine. So, yeah, maybe we end up with uh, maybe ARM becomes the new thing. And all we need is a simple, simple OS on that that can handle our web services, etc.
0: There may be some migration efforts involved. Native Java applications would port over just fine. You know, there's, there's a ARM Java runtime. Oftentimes, those Java apps will reach out to native C-compiled libraries, which would have to be rebuilt for ARM. Linux and ARM has been around almost as long as ARM has been around. And so most things, any kind of scripting language, any kind of interpreted language would work out of the box. And it's not a big deal. We're already cross-compiling things for either Windows or Linux. So you're saying I could run my Ruby on Rails apps today on ARM? Absolutely. (laughs) Perfect. This may be be (laughs) the last time you appear on the podcast, but absolutely.
1: Come on. Give
0: my
2: Ruby a break.
1: Great. Well, that wraps up our our top three. Um, But did you guys have any honorable mentions or anything that didn't quite make your top three list that we should maybe mention?
0: Actually, Microsoft's a really good number one. In fact, one of the things that crossed my mind for, for my top three was Microsoft joining the Open Invention Network, which is a community that's dedicated to protecting Linux and other open source software from risk of being sued over patents, basically. I think Microsoft's commitment to open source and Linux in general has been really good this year. Uh, providing those dev, DevOps tools is fantastic. And uh, just in the past couple of days, there's been press releases from Microsoft about how Visual Studio is overtaking other IDEs as development environments of choice, even within competing companies like Google. We didn't even touch on IBM acquiring Red Hat. I thought about that, but I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly news. Definitely news. But I don't know what to say with that. I mean, did, it, did they buy Red Hat for, I mean, Amazon obviously saw this coming early and pivoted away from, from Red Hat CentOS to their own Amazon Linux, just as they saw the issues with Sun Java and they pivoted away to their own distribution of Java, the third largest tech acquisition in US history. The first being AOL Time Warner, the second being Dell buying EMC in 2016 for $41 billion. But $34 billion for Red Hat is just an outstanding amount of money. Yeah, I think they sold high. So I, I I don't know it's it's weird. Did they buy Red Hat for the for, for the money they have in the books for support revenue over the next three or four years, or are they really committing to some kind of big changes in the cloud? I've I've never seen IBM as more than really a, a fairly bare metal infrastructure provider. So so buying Red Hat's kind of a strange thing to me. I mean, are they going to save money by doing this? What's, are they going to retire the, their deal? own OS?
1: <laughs> they have their own OS. Oh. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I mean, AIX is a little long in the tooth uh, to begin with, but, uh, you know, it's, um, it's, it's a little interesting to me because, you know, when this broke and, you know, a Red Hat, I think has it really isn't doing a lot to really move the needle forward for Linux. And I think we've sort of kind of moved beyond the era that Linux versus Windows is so important with the dawn of containers and microservices, architectures, and things like that, the operating system becomes just the platform you're building on top of. And so I think Red Hat has sort of struggled to find an identity. And they were getting pretty good traction with the OpenShift product, which is their Kubernetes pass layer. And so I think... If I was IBM and looking at, you know, they have a pretty traditional software enterprise subscription based business that kind of fits right into an IBM play. You know, IBM has been trying to do some things with containers with Bluemix for a while, but they're not really getting the market traction. So if you look around, who's providing value on top of Kubernetes and the one that you'd always would hear would be OpenShift. So potentially IBM sees this as a way to take more market share in the OS space that is sort of legacy, but yet steady revenue and then also get a really good stronghold into Kubernetes with OpenShift, I think that's their play. I mean, there's really not a lot else there that I think is really valuable. CoreOS was interesting before they got bought by Red Hat, and then I think it's kind of been going the wayside. Uh, there's been a couple other interesting yeah. acquisitions, Ansible in particular. Um, IBM might be able to do something with that. But you know, again, while Ansible has a humongous uh, open source community around it they're not really developing enterprise features there. So it's a little weird for IBM. So I really think it's an open shift play and I think it's it's a you know a, a steady revenue stream with the enterprise licenses on Red Hat. But the world doesn't care about Red Hat as much as it used to. Uh, Let's talk about uh, the couple that I had. Um, So the first one, uh, Google announced at their conference uh, resource-based pricing. And so um, this is interesting because it's a bit of a paradigm shift for the cloud in general. Um, Being able to dynamically allocate both CPUs and or memory in any any denomination you feel fit and then pay for that based on that resource-based pricing, um, I think really starts to change the game for how you think about your compute workloads. And I'm glad to start seeing the cloud adopt you know cloud providers start doing different things with pricing cuz i think the model of on demand and then you can buy prepay ris to get discounting that model was was one way to do it i like google's methodology around the more you run the server the less you pay for it uh, I think that's a great model. And I would actually like to see more providers pick up some of that. Um, and this new third model, I think, really starts to change um, a lot of the game as well. And so i excited to see the cloud providers continue to experiment with new pricing models to give more flexibility and more capabilities to the customer base. I, I definitely think it's it's up there as honorable.
2: I definitely think uh, the, the more flexibility and pricing, the better. You know, I, I, it, when, when each of these models comes out, it's almost like you can picture... Um, the capability the technology capability to provision and track that drove the the pricing model in order to ensure that they don't end up you know provisioning a bunch of stuff that isn't getting paid for or vice versa so yeah i mean i, I wonder if more and more flexible pricing models is the result of more them better understanding their provisioning models the scale that they have making incremental build out less of a risk for them etc but well, i bet there's something driving it
1: this is kind of like if you need 20 CPUs and only four gigs of memory, you know, you can make that choice. And then uh, my last honorable mention uh, was around Kubernetes. And so um, 2018 saw both Azure and Amazon announce competing products for, uh, for Kubernetes in general. So Azure K8 service came out right at the end of Q4, you know, Q4 2017. It really GA'd and, uh, January, February timeframe, and then Amazon, of course, announced uh, EKS and didn't ship that until about Q2 of 2018. And then even Google is continuing to uh, provide more Kubernetes capabilities by offering a new service called uh, GKE On-Premises. And so they'll basically manage and run your Kubernetes cluster on-premises to continue to simplify the Kubernetes story. So... Seeing all three hyperscalers now basically all saying Kubernetes is kind of our, is a container platform we need to support and drive, um, I think really start showing the power of what Kubernetes is doing in the marketplace. Now, there's a bunch of arguments about you know, is that market still too fragmented and is there too many solutions there and is it too complicated? And that's that's still to be determined, I think. But the fact that we now kind of come to a point where we can all say Kubernetes is standard across all three hyperscalers, that's a really fantastic move. And it really shows the power of what that open source community has been able to drive since Google released it into the wild uh, two and a half years ago.
2: From our perspective, it's one of the highest in demand skill sets that are being requested at Foghorn around uh, they're just helping people build their own Kubernetes clusters, deploy onto EKS and uh other services. It's been uh, uh just ramping at an incredible pace.
0: Yeah, it's um it's just like the barrier for entry for me is kinda of like it's it's I can't just download it and and uh I mean Docker you can download and run it and do stuff with it in five minutes. ACS you can you can deploy it and you can do things with it in thirty minutes. But um I mean I guess uh, to to do Kubernetes properly. needs needs thought and uh and planning and some prerequisites like pki infrastructure
1: and uh, a strong love for yaml files (laughs) uh yeah no I, i i find the barrier to entry to kubernetes to be too high for what it's providing but um you know it's definitely taken over the world and people are excited about it and so that's great well if you do want
2: to try it i would recommend trying minikube
1: yes minikube is definitely the the right entry
0: point okay And that's it for this week's episode. Here at The Cloud Pod, we strive to bring you the latest news regarding AWS, Asia, and GCP, and we're here to help you navigate the world of cloud computing. If you have any questions, reach out to us on our website, thecloudpod.net, or tweet us with the hashtag, thecloudpod.